Yo, what's going on, fam out there? It's your boy Tahir Johnson, and we're back with another super special episode of the Cannabis Diversity Report. Today I have Nyambi McIntosh, the founder of the Peter Tosh Foundation, daughter of the legendary reggae singer Peter Tosh, and criminal justice reform activist. Nyambi, so happy to have you on the show today talking about your um talking about your background. How you doing? Thank you. It's definitely a pleasure to be here. And um uh, thank you so much. I'm doing well. Absolutely. So again, so thankful to have you on. Um, you're you're the daughter of the youngest of nine children, correct? Of um of Peter Tosh. Yeah, the youngest of ten, actually. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a unique upbringing. Um, and I was born in uh, Jamaica, but raised in Boston, Massachusetts. So. Um, only really grew up with um, one brother, um, which we'll talk more about, but um, definitely still close to all of my other siblings. Right. And so, you um, you know, coming from that, coming from the family, do you um, do any music or, you know, entertainment or anything like that? Is it, is it, in, does it run in the family? Well, the singing gene definitely didn't um, come to me, <laughs> but the love of music uh, is is definitely there. Um, grew up loving music just um, around, actually listening to a lot of hip hop being raised in Boston. And then um, once I uh, became a te teenager, I DJed for a few years. Um, nice. That's when I got it. You know, I had a sound system is what we call it in Jamaica. So. Um, DJed for some years and, and uh, played in different places. So I've always had the love of music, but I guess if I was singing, I wouldn't be really running the carrying on kind of the legacy in the way that I do now. Um. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And, and even though you grew up in Boston, like being from and having family, um, what's cannabis culture like? What is it? Um, what does cannabis really mean to you? Uh, well, you know, um, Cannabis is is definitely part of the fabric of um, of my family, really on both sides, you know. And, and you know, we we recognize ourselves as uh, followers of Rastafari and hold the plant to be sacrament, a sacrament. And so, you know, people often ask, um, who smokes in your family or who consumes? But the reality for my family, you got to ask who doesn't. You know, <laughs> right. um, and I have a large family, uh, both on my maternal side and in my and um, my paternal side. Right, and and talk a little bit about the the Peter Tosh Foundation. What are some of the things that you're doing to uphold your family? Yeah, um, so I'm the founder of the Peter Tosh Foundation, and I am the director of the um, legacy and brand. So there's two different uh, capacities there. But as far as the um, I'll speak about the, the kind of the legacy part first and then go into the foundation. Um, being the head of the legacy, I've taken over my dad's estate um, about 10 years ago. Um, it was run by a public administrator. And so that's really controlling the, the name, the image, the likeness, and um, you know, looking for any opportunity to have his message, um, you know, impart wisdom. Um, however we can, we're working on a major motion movie, a theatrical play, and and we're constantly uh, looking for and working on new and creative merchandising ideas. But we, we understand the brand is, is really limitless. Here's your reminder. Oops. Drink a bottle of water. <laughs> 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 I like to be quiet. 
<laughs> you know, still, still the pandemic. So you know, there's stuff going yeah. on. Dogs barking, kids running there. Alexa, bring your mind to drink water. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I do in that capacity. And so my day, I'm spending days just on the phone all the time. But but then. Um, we, as the family, you know, we recognize that, you know, my father's music was more more than just music. Um, it was really to uplift and educate and inspire people. Let me unplug Alexa here, because she apparently got a lot to say. Um, mm-hmm. It was really, you know, his music was really to uplift and inspire people. And so we wanted to make sure we carried on that by starting the foundation in, in 2016. Um, and so in that regard, we, we have five different initiatives and, um, one is the Peter Talk Museum, which we actually opened up in 2015 in Kingston, Jamaica, um, where the world now can go and learn about, um, learn about him and his contribution to music. He was one of the founders, um, foundational members of the Whalers, um, which is Bob Marley, Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler. Um, and so there's that. And then we also have um, the Legal Acted Initiative where we partner with, um, um, we're advocacy partners of minorities for medical marijuana. And so we, we work together to really do that work to, to bring um, minorities into the, the cannabis space, as well as just educational workshops and um, informational platform to, to really help our community and those that have been impacted by the, the war on drugs. Um, then we also have the Camp Women Youth Initiative, and that is um, really the opportunity that allows us to bridge that gap to the next generation. Um, my father's music was around 40 years ago, and so we we understand the power of music and how it how it can inspire um, many people, and it still continues to inspire people. So through that initiative, we we do workshops with young with young people and um, and have them connect with the music and the message, um, you know, to kind of have that, that wisdom that you spoke about earlier. Um, and then we have uh, Equal Rights Initiative, which is really just a global initiative to partnering with different organizations around the globe uh, with, a, with a very much um, love for the continent of Africa. Because um, my father was definitely a Pan-Africanist um, and recognize that, you know, no matter where you come from on this globe, no matter what nationality you claim as a person, as a black person, you're an African, you know, we all, we all come from the continent. So that's definitely a, a focus of ours as well. And then, um, last but, but not least is the, um, Justice for Jawara initiative. And, um, that's, uh, allows for us to kind of share my brother, um, Jawara's story, who's Peter's youngest son. Um, with hopes to push towards um, cannabis legalization on a national level. Um, and so we can definitely kind of transition into that if you yes, like. Yes, yeah, and you know, and I think that it's, it's really important to, to tell your brother's story um, because with cannabis, um, we have people that are, you know, facing these criminal charges for something that is now legal, $20 billion industry, we currently have 40,000 people um, in prison for cannabis. Um, you know, I think it's important to bring light to these situations. So, you know, I, I, you know, I, I would love for you to just share and talk, you know, talk a little bit more about your brother, Jawar. 
Definitely. Um, so in 2013, Father's Day weekend, uh, my brother Jawara uh, was arrested in um, New Jersey for cannabis possession. And um, he was actually held without a hearing for about three months um, before kind of facing a judge and, and, um, and prosecution happening. And so I remember um, it was September of, of 2013 when my mom and I, we all kind of showed up to the hearing to support him. And I remember him coming in with like shackles on his ankles and, and arms. And, you know, I personally thought that um, this would be something that would just pass. You know, my brother has never been um, um, involved with the criminal justice system before. He's a father of four. Um, he is, we are followers of Rastafari. And, you know, I, I just said, you know, this is, although this is happening, this is just going to pass, you know, it's can't be that, that serious. Um, but then we heard the prosecution um, offer a 20 year plea. Um, and that's when we knew that this was something that was a little bit more than just some sort of um, um, what they would consider a, a minor offense. And the judge then set the bail to, to $200,000. Um, and it was mind boggling. You know, my, my brother is a musician. He's the most fun loving guy that, you know, anyone would, would know. Um, he ended up staying, um, incarcerated for another uh, three months. So the end of 2013. And um, fortunately, with a lot of support, he was able to kind of make bail. Uh, so then the next three years, he pretty much was going back and forth from Boston, which is where we're from, to New Jersey for um, kind of pre-motion um, hearings. and. Every time he went, they would say, tell him that, you know, this, they would offer him a new plea deal. You know, they'd offer him like 15 years and say, you know, this is, this is as low as it's going to get. You, you definitely need to take this. Um, and you go back again and it'll be 10 years. And then you go back again, um, it was five years. And I remember, um, you know, at that point he was kind of worn out and we were hearing so much um, information about, you know, New Jersey and, and their criminal justice system. And, um, you know, come had come to learn that um, that particular county, Bergen County, really is a, a kind of a prison um, economy. You know, you, you, you go in that neighborhood and you see a bails bondman on every corner, you know, and, and my brother had talked about um, when he was incarcerated those first few months that he was locked up with a 17 year old who couldn't make bail for having just about an ounce of weed, $150 bail. And, you know, that's just, you know, unwarranted. That's a baby in my eyes, I'm an educator, but this is the system that, that exists and continues to exist. So um, by 2016, it was December, um, we had kind of become torn, you know, we were torn between really fighting for what we believe in and you know, recognizing the plan as a sacra sacrament, recognizing that we didn't commit a crime um, and fighting for that, but then also not wanting to be made an example of by um, the New Jersey judicial system. 
because that's the threats that, you know, we were hearing, you know, if you take this to trial, you're, you know, they're going to give you the maximum sentencing. If you take this to trial, it's going to be even harsh, you know, you, you could probably take the plea. And so um, in 2016 of, of December, that's exactly what my brother did. He, you know, he, he was told that, you know, although you're gonna take a five year plea, you'll probably only serve like a year. And then you already did about six months. So it'll be, you know, you'll have some time served there. So you'll probably get out, you know, within a year's time and, and be all set. Um, so he turned himself in, in January of 2017. In, um, after a month of being incarcerated, um, we had gotten a call, my mom and I, she, my mother actually calls me. She's, she's frantic. Um, she's crying. And she said, there's a, there's a doctor on the phone. They're saying something about, about Jawara. Um, and that's when the doctor said, uh, we need to perform a life-saving medical procedure on your brother, Jawara. He's been attacked by another inmate. Um, and we, I authorized it at the time, and my mom and I immediately flew to um, Hackensack Medical Center where my brother was. And um, he was in the surgical ICU. And when we arrived, we were told that um, we don't have the right to see him, that um, you know he is a ward of the state and um, we'd have to check with the prison, with the jail, to um to see if we can actually be authorized to see him and um we called the jail and they, they made a point to say well you know that you know it's the policy that you're, you're not allowed to he's not allowed visitation um and here my brother is fighting for his his life and you know other families really probably going you know have gone through similar things and we were told no but i felt like it was really my father's name you know, that, that kind of forced them to make an exception. So we, um, we went into the surgical ICU. Um, my brother had tubes on his throat. He had a neck brace on, um, his face was bruised. Uh, half of his dreadlocks were shaved off due to the surgery, um, swollen. And um, he had an ankle, uh, uh, a handcuff on his ankle and uh, was surrounded by um, correctional officers. Um, and, and here my brother was literally fighting for his life. And um, we turned to the hospital immediately and was just like, can we get this handcuff removed? Like this can not possibly be helping, um, helping his case and helping him and, and you know, literally fight for his life. Um, and they was like, you know, that's up to the to the jail. The the jail actually has um, hierarchy over the hospital. Um, and you know, at that point, um, we had then found out that my brother was, um, you know, was was pretty much incapacitated. You know, unable to walk, talk, um, do anything for himself. Um, it was a severe traumatic brain injury that he had suffered from the attack. And um, from that moment is when I knew that our lives were forever changed. Um, after months of kind of, act, you know, fighting for <clears throat> his freedom, we actually were successful and was able to have him released from the prison due to his medical injuries. But he remained in um, the ICU for months. Um, 
and then eventually um, came to Boston where we were able to get him into some of um, one of Boston's best hospitals. And there he remained in the hospital for another um, almost two years actually, uh, 500 and something days. And um, we, we knew that we wanted to continue to have him, you know, fight for his vitality. Doctors were like, hey, you know, this is not, you know, this is, the odds are against you basically. And, you know, you, you could take another, another route, which we just, my brother was very spiritual, you know, and we didn't want that to happen. Um, so we took him home and, and cared for him for um, uh, about a year before, unfortunately, he lost his, um, he lost his battle, you know, with the, due to his injuries in July of 2020. Um, but I will say that, you know, as a cannabis activist, you know, we were told he would never do anything again. And after, you know, starting to give him cannabis medicine, he had said my name for the first time. Um, you know, he was starting to gain some of his, um, you know, vitality, but it was, it was very difficult. Um, for him and unfortunately he kind of lost that battle during um, the pandemic. So um, I continue to kind of share his story because you know we hear um, those that have been impacted by the war on drugs. Um, you know, we hear criminal, we hear convict and all of these really technically could apply to my brother. But the reality is that, you know, he's a human first you know, and it's important that we recognize how detrimental the war on drugs has been to families and how bad it, it has gotten. Um, and that's why we really need to have not only legalization, um, but the immediate release of all cannabis prisoners, you know. And so we had partnered with um, the Last Prisoner Project um, to kind of push for that initiative not only nationally but really globally as well yeah that's a a terrible story to hear um and you know i, I grew up in new jersey myself so i know this environment this picture that you're painting to be true right like the way just the the system is um and it's a shame that for cannabis right like something again life um you know it's hard to even find the words to even say about something that is just so disturbing. Um, when you think of what are some of the key things that you think can be done, like in cannabis reform to fix this, to make sure that, um, you know, not only, um, you know, not only changing laws, but what are some of the things that you can do to be activists to try to draw attention to these types of things to help? I mean, um, it's really, really important that we all become activists in, in some ways, understanding when you say not only changing laws, but that's really the crutch of it, is mm -hmm. um, being a part of that. And unfortunately, you know, um, we, um, you know, as minorities, often don't have the privilege of time to be on the front lines, you know, at the townhouse meetings, at the city, the city meetings to, to really um, lobby in the way that big money can just throw out, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousand dollars to just have somebody there every single time and testify. But it really takes, um, you know, us to, to really show up 
you know, and 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 have and be a part of that civic duty that allows us to get the justice that we deserve. Um, I also would say that um, you know, putting spending your money where your values lie. In so many states, um, cannabis is becoming legal, and the the faces of the industry, unfortunately, don't look like us. Um, but if we are choosing to, to consume and support these businesses, um, making sure that we hold them accountable, you know, um, they, they have to be doing their part to, to, um, change, um, change the face of the industry as well as putting money back into, into the communities that have been impacted. Right. And I, and I think you said something really important earlier. Um, I think we see far too often that when it comes to black lives and the criminal system, they often dehumanize us. Um, you know, your brother, like your brother, he was a brother, he was a father, he was a son. Like even being the son of a legendary entertainer, that that still didn't stop him from getting this fate. All that when they looked at him, he was just a black man, and that's all he saw. Um, you know, so you know, I think that really bringing this community to us is something that's so important. Like, what would you, what would you want people to know about your brother, right? Like, because he's not a convict, he's not a criminal. He was just a, a person using cannabis, something that was his culture, something that religion, something he came up with, and then he ends up in jail for it. Like, what you know, what would you, what would you tell people about your, you know, about your brother and his legacy? Um, and oh, what, what it means yeah. to you. Uh, thank you. That's a really good question. Um, you know, we grew up together in Boston, attended Boston Public Schools. Uh, we, he actually was the first to graduate from his, um, a, a small charter school called City on a Hill and the only one at the time because all of the competencies that you had to go through. So he was extremely intelligent. He went on to Northeastern University um, and he was a musician. You know, his, his musical name is Tosh One and uh, he had the gift. I didn't get the singing gene, <laughs> um, but he did. And he had, I would, you know, growing up with him, I always told people that, um, um, men and women would fall in love with my brother because he was someone that if he was in a room, you couldn't really compete with it. You didn't really want to because he was so entertaining and just so um, full of life. You know, he had that real performer um, gene and um, people that even weren't related to him, you know, young children that weren't related to him called him Uncle Tosh, you know. <laughs> um, that's the type of kind of fun loving spirit that he's always had. And um, and so I, I think it's really important that, you know, he wasn't someone kind of caught up in the system. And even if that is, there's a whole nother story that goes with that, you know, but, um, you know, he was this this genuine, just um, full of life and full of love individual. And, and um, um, I think anyone, you know, that, got to know him that would have had the opportunity to know him would would fall in love with him in just a more of a genuine kind of way. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, what um what type of what type of um like in terms of like with nail that you're doing this type of work like you're doing work with Last Prisoner Project. Um I know you're also carrying on with the Peter Tosh um, foundation, are you active like using the in, like the influence now of like the foundation that you 
to carry the message and everything as well? Uh, yeah, we are. We are actually working on our um, a cannabis brand uh, in the name and methods of Peter Tosh called Seen by Peter Tosh, and um, ten percent of the proceeds um, does go back to the Peter Tosh Foundation, and really um, trying to be an exemplar of what um, you know a brand should look like, especially with the name like uh, my dad, Peter Tosh, you know, he um, wrote the iconic song, Legalize It, uh, which is a platinum selling album back in, you know, 1976, um, which was banned in Jamaica at the time. And people see um, him, you know, if you Google him, you'll see he has a spliff in his mouth, you know, no matter where he is on stage, you know, I've heard stories of him lying up on the plane back in the, you know, and so people would think that um, because you see him with a flip and he's always representing his, what he recognizes as his, his right, his human right, um, that it was easy for him. But in fact, uh, he had faced police brutalization uh, countless times for those beliefs. Um, and it, and was made a target, you know, in many places. So we we wanted to to make sure that you know every facet of of the business really um, allows for us to kind of um, to help you know those that that are that need support and to to represent not only the the activism part, but also the, the Rastafarian aspect of things. You know, the term seen um, really is, um, you know, a term that's used in, in Patois that pretty much means like, do you understand? And, and but also it's a double play on words where, you know, seen by Peter Tosh is that this industry that exists now is a vision that, you know, he had many, many years ago. You know, and it started with his uh, first solo album, Legalize It. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's crazy to hear that that was banned in Jamaica. That's like a classic, classic though. Yes, <laughs> definitely. At a time when no one was, you know, really. <laughs> that's like the first, the first song you ever hear. <laughs> Exactly. That should, that should still be like the you know people need to play that more, man. That should be like the anthem everywhere for real. Definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. It is in my life, you know. It's what drives us and fuels us, and and um, continues to to keep my eyes on the prize, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and you know, talk talk a little bit about um, Rastafari culture. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of people don't really know, um, you know, what that means. Yeah. Um, so Jamaica was colonized by the British in, in the 1700s. And um, the the way of life is they don't we don't consider it a religion. It's really just a way of life um, was founded in the 1930s as an anti-colonialist movement. Um, you know, it's basically the fight against oppression. Um, you know, at that time, the the rulers of Jamaica were all um British, they were all European. And so the Rastafari culture was founded to, because they recognized that um, their identity was not that of the oppressor. At that time, you know, it was Western civilization with church and it was a lot of church 
um, members that kind of became more conscious of their identity and, and their connection to Africa. And so Rastafarian culture really is a focus on, on, on connecting with more of the indigenous ways of, of our African ancestors, you know, and, and um, taking from the earth what you can put back in, you know, um, recognizing the plant as a sacrament, eating healthy, the term um, idle food, uh, really comes from vital, which just, you know, vitality. So promoting life in, in the food that you eat and promoting life in, in everything. So you hear that word, idle, or, you know, even Irie, you know, is just this well-being and, and happiness in, in the spirit. And so Rastafari, just like any other kind of um, practice or religion, you have a spectrum of the way people practice it. But fundamentally, it's it's... Um, having a consciousness of the world around you um, more than what you see on mainstream media. And then also um, understanding that, you know, uh, we are one, the term I and I, instead of, you know, you and I, it's, it's I and I. It's recognizing that, you know, we're all brothers and sisters. Mm, that's dope. That's dope. <laughs> um, and, you know, for you, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a blessing to see that you're even, you know, after what you do with your brother, that you are still holding on. Um, you're fighting, you're upholding not only your father's legacy, but his legacy. Um, you know, what's what's next for you? What are you know, what is what are some things that you know, are important to Niambi? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've I've always been an educator. I actually uh, taught in Boston Public Schools um for 10 years prior to this. And and uh so I, this is just really a transition in, in doing the same thing, you know, I taught math, but I really enjoyed just teaching life, you know, and, and it was really, prior to that, I was an engineer. And as an engineer, I was the only black person, the only black woman, <laughs> and mm -hmm. there was a disconnect for me. I always knew that I wanted to really help um, my fellow people, you know, and so I switched and, and taught in Boston with schools and that's where I felt more, more comfortable, you know, during the lunch break, I'd be showing documentaries, you know, <laughs> just to kind of impart quick wisdom as, you know, as much as I could. And so now with this transition, the foundation allows me to continue to do that. And my father's legacy really allows me to do that. Um, his music, he has songs like Equal Rights and Justice, you know, and in, in when we think about the time that we're living in right now, at the end of that song, he says, um, you know, Angolans fighting out for equal rights and justice. He says, Palestine fighting out for equal rights and justice. And this was in 1978, you know, mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I, I think that the music um, really allows for us to really, you know, it's a bridge to, to educate us. And, um, you know, he had a song called Mystic Man and he talked about not eating any red, blue, green, drinking any red, blue, green soda, eating frankfurters, you know, all of the issues that kind of plague us <laughs> today mm -hmm. being ignorance, but also just wellness. And, you know, his music has, has been always a way to, to educate and, uh, and uplift us. So it's, it's just a continuation for me, and I and I and I like having the platform to to be able to do the same thing that I've always it's always been true to me, you know. And it's, it's super dope that you that you're using your background as an educator. Like that's one of my favorite things about just the cannabis industry in general. Like there's so many opportunities for people to come in and use these skills again, um, to help uplift the industry. And you know the work that you're doing is super important. Um, again, like you know, making sure that people that are 
we're talking about a, a, a industry that made twenty billion dollars in the U.S. alone, and still um, people being arrested. Like I know statistics, some places like over twenty times more likely to be yeah. arrested for cannabis. So you know, mm-hmm. what you're doing is important, and I definitely appreciate you. Um, you know, telling your story again. I think these things that bring like, the actual, you know, putting a face on these people, putting a name on these people, like, right? Like it's not just a, a number. Um, exactly. You know, on drugs isn't hypothetical. It's a real thing. Like, you talk about New Jersey. Like I've been. Growing up, I was pulled over like 60, some 70 times like in my life, like getting searched everyone. You feel lucky just to even make it out of something like that. So it's, this is why it's super important for us to um, be legalizing it and telling these stories. And I definitely appreciate you coming through today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I second that, you know, and that's why I, I do what I do. The My brother's story isn't easy to tell, you know, it, it was, it's traumatic experience for my family and telling it, I'm forced to relive that trauma, but I understand um, how important it is for people to understand and have that connection with um, people that have been impacted by the war on drugs. And it's very much alive, very much still prevalent. Um, Cannabis has been used to kind of dehumanize us, as you said, from Trayvon Martin, it was thrown out in the media, to Fidel um, Castile, it was thrown out in the media, Beyond Taylor, we can go down the list, you know, that they use um, this to then justify their ultraviolence against us. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, these are humans, you know, we're human, I'm human, and um, we have to start to kind of make a make a change. And even if it's, if all you can do is, is educate one other person, you know, or um, share, you know, the, the podcast, uh, do that because you never know who has the power to, to do more. So um, we all got to do our part. Absolutely. And, and can you just um, let everyone know where they can find you, um, where they can learn more about the Peter Tosh Foundation and, all, and like really all the other work that you're doing across the board? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, you know, I'm pretty much easy to find. <laughs> I might be the only Niambi on the planet. <laughs> um, when I you thought Google- I was the only Tahir, but I <laughs> there's, there's actually others, but I'm probably the only one that will come up on Google. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, so I'm pretty much easy to find. But you can definitely check out uh, PeterTosh.com uh, to learn more about the legacy of my dad, and then uh, PeterToshFoundation.org. And that's where you can learn about the, the foundation. And then at Peter Tosh on um, you know Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And then to kind of follow me personally, um, I'm uh, Miss Ms underscore underscore Tosh on Instagram. And then Neon B Macintosh on Facebook. So um, and then I'm on Twitter as well, but barely. <laughs> but, but no time um, to tweet, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no time to tweet, but uh, yeah. So uh, um, we we're definitely accessible, and we're always looking for you know different partners um, to kind of support the initiatives that we have on, and also I'm also looking you know to support other things that people have going on. So it takes a takes a village to do this work. Amen to that. Yeah, you know, definitely want to make sure we keep in touch and collaborate and support you, and you know anything you do in the future. And again, like you said, I know it's painful just to even tell that story. So I appreciate you, um, you know, just having the um, 
you know, the, the serenity to, you know, just to, to go through that. So, and thank, thank you for doing that. Um, super, super dope catching up with you. You know, we got to do this again sometime and um, world's opening back up. Y'all see you when I'm it is. <laughs> Of course, of course, let me know. <laughs> Bobby, will you take care everybody out there thanks for rocking with us today and man I'm, I'm definitely about to bump that legalize it when we get off of this i'm about that's about to be like my new ringtone i'm about to that's about to be the new it's crazy enough like i feel like to, for being in this cannabis advocacy space i would imagine you that's a song you would hear more but i'm about to oh we about we about to clip we about to make that you got to turn that up <laughs> that's what's up that's what i love there thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure all right, Niambi, you have a good one. Talk to you soon. All right, take care. Bye. And we are...